The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, I'm here for you, whatever you'd like to do. Um, somebody mentioned Utejaniya uh, teaching, so I sent some documents along for some things that I put together for a similar group in uh, Switzerland when I was there last year or the year before. And there was a group of, um, I don't know, 15 or 20 European teachers that were doing was doing a retreat with Sayadaw, but then wanted to meet with me to get some suggestions on how to teach it, you know, also how to share it. So I put these together then. If it's helpful, we can use that. If it's... If you have other questions, or whatever you want to do. Yeah, and, just, might, yeah, you, and you might just want to start talking, but we did ask, especially the people on the Dharma Leadership Training, to come up with some questions, yeah. just generally about the practice, the Buddhist teachings, but also more specifically about Saida's way of teaching and way of practicing. Yeah. And uh, although this, next year they're going to read uh, When an Awareness Becomes Natural, or some book, so... There will be an assigned text uh, for the second year of the training. That's a great book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But part of the part of what we wanted to do was just them to get a chance to pick your brain and to uh, just have your thoughts about being in the seat where you're sharing the Buddhist teachings and sharing the practice. And then just because Saito's teachings have had such a big influence, in, you know, in the last. 10 or 5 or 10 years on the inside meditation scene here in the West, which is, and you're sort of, like Shelley said, somebody who really uh, speaks out of that sort of way of practice now, um, just not like a perfect opportunity to, to kind of maybe just start talking about it and then see if they have questions. They will. They have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're supposed to. <laughs> this is a requirement. <laughs> well, I, you know, when I, when I meet with the group, more... You, Usually when I meet, even with a retreat, at a retreat, or meet with a public, a group publicly at a public talk, or a non-residential weekend or something, I don't usually get connected until people start asking questions. And that's when I, I feel like I can address exactly what is, I mean, I could go on rambling on about something of interest to me that I know, but it might not connect with where you are, what your interest is, or what your questions are. So... Um, I'm going to keep talking until somebody has a question, and if I say anything that's useful, that's good. If I don't, well, that's your... I mean, hey, ask a question. (laughs) So, um, let me just start by, you know, a lot of the under... the the whole practice of mindfulness in the West uh, really has only been going on for about 45 years, Uh, and the format for how it was presented in the West was always intensive retreats. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't classes or workshops or non-residential weekends. It was just nine-day retreats and then a three-month retreat. And that was almost all there was for several years. And the Meditation Center in Massachusetts got started pretty quick. But the format was, you know, silent, uh, sitting and walking, slow, uh, micro slow to micro slow, uh, noting, which is labeling your meditative experience, uh, attending to a primary object like the breath, usually at the belly and at the nostrils if that's what you wanted, uh, <coughs> noting, slow, continuous, uh, 
and with a with a lot of mention and emphasis on focusing on the object of your attention so that your attention is the mind and the object of your attention is kind of like the present moment's experience that you're attending to which can be a chosen experience like the breath you can choose to attend to that or you can just let your attention be open and receptive to whatever your attention is called to. And it might be sensations in the body, might be sounds in the room, might be thoughts in the mind, might be emotions in the heart. The object can be anything. And the understanding of that was if you focus on an object, uh, at the moment that you are clearly recognizing this experience, then your mind is not tormented by desire, aversion, judgment, depression, anger, self-pity. It's just, it knows that experience, and it keeps the mind pure for that moment. Pure meaning no torments, no hindrances. And so the, the aim was to be as continuous as possible on the primary object. So if you chose the rising falling, which is what the primary object out of the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition in Burma, which is... He's like the grandfather, one of the grandfathers of the whole mindfulness movement in America. And so a lot of the guidance and a lot of the instruction comes from the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition. Rising, falling, noting, slow. So as long as you could focus on your primary object and recognize this is the experience of breathing in, this is the experience of breathing out, this is the experience of breathing in, this is the experience of breathing out, and the more continuous you were, the more continually the mind was pure, meaning not, not tormented. And from the development of the purity of mind, then you begin to, the mind becomes more powerful, more collected, more concentrated, although I, I hesitate to use that word, but more collected. And when the mind is more collected, it's like looking at something through a magnifying lens. You know, we see it, we see it with our normal eye, but when you look at something through a magnifying lens, you see more details. You understand more about what you're, what you're seeing. So as the mind becomes more collected through the continuity of focusing on the primary object and not so dispersed by thoughts and you know, torments of the mind, then we see the events of our life, not just the breath, but the events of our life as they come up for attention. We see them in greater detail. We see more clearly what's going on. We see more deeply into them. We begin to see kind of the inner characteristics or the inner nature of everything we look at. One of the inner nature, I mean, some of the inner natures that we get in touch with is, especially around emotions, you know, a lot of times when we are emotional, when we, when we have emotions or when we get entangled in an emotional storm of one sort or another, just in case that happens to you, um, then most of us are familiar with the story of it. You know, I'm upset, I'm so angry because you said this, I did that, I shouldn't have done that, you did, you did, you did. or if you're fear, I'm afraid of this because, you know, that, that, or jealousy, you know, you did this, I did that. And the story seems to be where we try to resolve our emotional turmoil. Well, the practice of awareness has a different direction, a different attitude, a different perspective. 
instead of focusing on the story, we're not denying the story, we're just saying, if you turn your attention to the actual experience of the feeling, recognizing the story, but also the feeling, then you can learn to be with the experience, not just caught in the story, but actually feel it, be with it, recognize its nature, watch its arising, watch its passing away. That's what we're interested in. Eventually coming to understand the nature of fear, the nature of desire, the nature of jealousy. And that's where we can, even though the content will, the content of our fear will change from day to day, the content of our depression will change, you know, year to year, the desires change a lot, but the nature of desire is the same every time. The nature of fear is the same every time. The nature of self-pity is the same every time. So learning to recognize the nature of these uh, emotional states, and I'm using the more the unwholesome or the emotional reactive ones. There are wholesome ones also, but learning to recognize them helps us to be a little more balanced about the events of our life, the story of our life, the narrative of my life. And that can come and go, and it'll do what it does, but you're able to be with the um, experience of the heart. But a lot of the format of intensive, <coughs> intensive retreats was you're silent, you only talk to the teacher, you only um, talk about the Dharma or your practice, you go slow, you're in seclusion. And while that can be a very powerful experience, uh, it doesn't transition or it doesn't translate to, it doesn't easily transition to the activities of our daily life. You know, we're going to work, we're dealing with people, we're fast, we've got a lot of decisions to make, we have to communicate a lot, and going slow and focusing on a primary object is just not going to work. And so there's been some whole, uh, there's been a whole expansion of Dharma interest towards integrated Dharma, where uh, out of the retreat, out of the retreat setting, then how do you use mindfulness in your daily life? And there's been a lot of a lot of workshoppy type experiences. You know, how to mindfulness in art, mindfulness in sex, mindfulness in dying, mindfulness this, mindful that, which is which is good. But Sayadaw Tijaniya is offering something different than that. So instead of using a primary object and focusing on it, instead of having a particular format of the retreat of going slow, focusing, using a primary object, staying with it as long as you can, he's pointing to awareness, which was going on all of, which is going on all the time when you focus on an object. There's the object and the awareness of it. But instead of focusing on the object and recognizing the object, Sayadu Tejniya points to recognizing the awareness, which is you don't have to focus. You know, as you sit here now, listening to me talk, are you aware that you're sitting? I mean, you've been sitting. Are you aware that you're sitting? You can go, yes or no. <laughs> you, 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 can, you can give me an answer. Yeah. Are you aware that you're sitting? Yes. Yeah? When did you become aware that you were sitting? Huh? When you asked the question. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the whole issue. You know, we experience a lot. You're hearing me, you're understanding me, you're sitting, uh, the sun is shining on, on you brightly and others. Uh, you might feel warm or cool, and we experience this stuff, but we're not aware of it. 
meaning. We don't recognize that that's our experience. So Sayadaw teaching is, you don't have to focus on anything. All you have to do is remember to recognize your present moment's experience. What's going on? I'm sitting. Okay? You're aware. Do you know that you're sitting? Yeah. Do you know that you're hearing? Yeah. Do you know that you feel warm? Yeah. Do you know what your mental state is? Like, are you interested in what I'm saying? Yeah. I know this. I recognize that. You know, and you can stay, you know, instead of kind of focusing on the breath or the sound or <laughs> your abdomen or something, you can just sit back here and just kind of check. Is the mind aware? Yeah. And whatever's going on. There could be a whole hullabaloo going on in the room. You can sit back. Are you aware? Yeah. I'm aware. It's chaotic. There's a lot going on. It's really, you know, a lot of activity. But you're aware. You don't have to kind of focus on the breath just to be sure that you're present. You can take in everything, anything, and recognize the awareness. So instead of recognizing the object, which arises in every moment, some object, and there's a knowing arising in every moment, and they arise like this. Object being known. Object being known. Object being known. Breathing in, be Breathing in, being known. Breathing out, being known. Hearing sounds, being known. Thinking thoughts, being known. That's the experience. The being known is the experience. But are you aware of the knowing? Oh, breathing in, aware is awareness of breathing in is happening. Yeah. So really, Saito's teaching points to recognizing awareness in every activity. You don't have to go slow. You don't have to have your eyes closed. You don't have to be paying attention to the breath. You can be going at normal pace. You can be talking. You can be listening and still check your awareness pretty regularly. So, in some ways, Sayadaw's teaching, I think, I feel, is very, um, very useful for we in the West who do, uh, who have very active lives. We're usually busy. We do a lot of communicating. We have uh, we do a lot of thinking and a lot of decision making, and you know we're you know our life is full and busy. And why can't we be? Why not be? Why not try to be aware of all that? Yeah. So that's his uh, kind of general shift. You know, the the teaching is shifted from the focusing slow retreat format to awareness in your everyday life at normal pace format. Chapter one. Okay. Any questions? <laughs> I think it might be good just to, because that way that you often define awareness practice is very simple, easy for people to remember. And uh, one of the things we've been saying to folks is just, you know, just how okay it is to borrow things that they hear from other teachers and to use it. And that's a very useful one. So maybe you could just repeat, you know, remembering to recognize. Yeah. Let me, just, let me, let me explain. I mean, you can, you know, if you go online and you look up mindfulness, you're going to get a lot of different, I mean, a lot of different articulations of what mindfulness is, how to practice mindfulness. Well, this is going to be a mindfulness group. Mindfulness is what? And there's a lot of different uh, descriptions and People use a lot of different words to point to this thing called mindfulness. And I, it, in practicing with 
Utejaniya came up with, my way of pointing to it is, is to say awareness, not just mindfulness, but awareness is remembering, remembering, to recognize present moment's experience. So there's three elements there. Remembering, recognizing, and the object, which is present moment's experience. So remembering, you know, as every teacher that has ever tried to practice mindfulness knows, it's easy to be mindful if someone's saying, oh, feel the sensations in your hands. Are you aware that you can, you know, can you feel the sensations in your right hand? Yeah, great. That's being aware. Easy to do that. Now feel it in your left hand. Okay. Yeah. Now notice the sound, the, the white sound, the white noise sound in the room. Are you aware of that? That you're hearing? Yeah. So if someone directs you to notice with awareness what's going on, easy. But now I'm not going to say anything <laughs> and just remember to be aware. Like, we forget. We forget from one moment to the next. We might remember one moment, maybe another moment, and then we forget to recognize. So remembering, you know, the, from the Abhidhamma, which is Buddhist psychology, the function of the mental factor, sati, translated as mindfulness, the function of mindfulness is to remember. Well, the function of mindfulness is to remember. The manifestation of sati, or the manifestation of mindfulness, is to observe. And the characteristic of mindfulness, the same mental factor, is to not float away, which means to stick with, not, not just desire and velcro, but to stay with the experience. So there's these three elements of mindfulness. To remember, to observe, and to, in a way, become intimate with the present moment. So that you don't just kind of glance off the present moment. I heard the sound, next, I saw the sound, yeah, next, next. It's like you spend some time, or you spend some quality time with your mind touching the experience. So what is the sound of the white noise? We know it's there, but when you remember to observe, feel, stay with it, then you can really sink into that sound. You can taste its true nature, which is just what it is. Okay. So that, instead of just floating away on thoughts about, oh, the white sound, oh, that's that's conditioned by the air blower and, you know, da, da, da. And, and we can think about that. But that's just being, that's just floating away on thoughts about the experience rather than staying with and experiencing knowingly the experience or the object itself. So that's an important piece. That's why I say to remember. That's, that's, without remembering, you can't observe. If you don't remember to be attentive or be aware, you can't observe. So you have to remember first. And then to recognize, recognizing something is actually perception, the activity of this mental factor, perception. And perception is, um, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to show you what perception is. 
How many fingers am I holding up? One, two, four, zero. Now wait a minute. How many fingers am I? Two. If if when I say how many fingers I am holding up, you'll think, oh, it's the one, it's this one, but actually I meant this one. You know, but my perception coming from my mind is this. Your perception is this. So perception is how we adapt. We are all looking. We're all looking at the same thing, but we have a different understanding, a different meaning of holding up or whatever. So perception is what identifies specifically what's so unique about this experience. So when you taste, do you drink Coke? If you drink Coke. Now, if you're a real Coke head, no, that's wrong. <laughs> if, you, if you really like Coke, you know the taste of Coke. And if somebody gets you a drink in a cup that looks like Coke, but it's really Pepsi, and you taste it, how is it that you know that's not Coke? Because in your mind, you have clearly made, you clearly distinguish and discern what the uniqueness of Coke is. And you know that this that you're tasting now is doesn't have that same unique, you can't discern the same unique uniqueness. So perception is what distinguishes and discerns subtle differences. Okay? Now we know how to do this because, you know, um, our ancestors, our way back there ancestors, those who were trying to choose between a ripe banana and an unripe banana, you know, the ones who weren't very discerning and chose the wrong banana, they didn't live to pass on their genes. So we don't, we don't have that inability. We have the ability to make these very refined distinctions. That's perception. So when I say to remember, to recognize, I'm saying remember, that's mindfulness, to recognize, take note of the uniqueness. That's what recognizing is. Take note of the uniqueness of this moment. And you can only do that if you really observe it, if you get close to it, if you actually touch it. You know, I could hold up, here's a, here's a, a plastic cup, a clear plastic cup full of chocolatey brown liquid that looks like Coke, and I could tell you it's Coke, and here's another one that I'm going to say, this is not Coke, this is an alternative. But you don't really know until you taste it, right? I could say, this is, this is Coke, but this one looks just, just like Coke, but you don't really know until you taste it. So you actually, to taste it, you have to get really close to it. You have to put that thing on your tongue. Well, to get close to your experience in the body, you have to taste it with your mind. That means you have to hear the sound with your ears, that's your mind. You have to taste something with your tongue, that's your mind. You have to taste something with your mind, which is clear perception. So, to remember is mindfulness, function of mindfulness. To recognize is clear perception. The only way it can be done is if you are, if you take the time or and, and watch the mind's ability to taste this experience. So, to taste the experience is necessary in order to recognize it. So remember to recognize, now we're talking about the present moment. In the present moment, there's always something being known by the mind. 
many things actually being known because the present moment goes by so quick. There's, <coughs> there's a lot going on. We're sitting, we're listening, we're understanding, we're feeling the temperature of the room. You have your own inner monologue that's going on about what I'm saying. You might be sitting there thinking, what the hell is it going on about it? This doesn't seem to be relevant to me. You know, it's like, you, know, you must be tired. You know, and you've got, your, you've got your own story going on about what's actually happening in here because that's what's happening to you. So this is all happening in the present moment, right? So when I say, remember to recognize the present moment, anything in the present moment can be recognized. Anything. If there's a really strong, predominant experience happening, you know, if suddenly, you know, there's an accident right outside here. We're not going to be paying attention to the white sound and the noise. <laughs> you know, even though that's still going on, we're going to be wondering, what the heck was that? Or if, if suddenly coming through the air, the air machine, there was, you know, a strong odor of something that was unpleasant. You know, we wouldn't be talking about the subtlety of the temperature in the room. We'd be like, oh my God, what's that? You know, so when there's a strong, predominant, we call it a predominant element to the present moment, that's where your attention will go automatically. Oh, okay. So, object, something happening in the present moment, being known. Your mind can pay, pay attention to anything. Right now, it's pretty benign. You could be paying attention to the sound, the temperature. You could be paying attention to how you feel in the posture. You've been sitting here for a half hour, maybe a bit uncomfortable. And any of those things. So we don't have to pick what to pay attention to. As long as it's something that's happening in the present moment. It can be a posture, it can be the sound, it can be what I'm saying and your own understanding, it can be your own monologue that's going on in your mind. So anything that's happening in the present moment is the object. So remembering is to come out of the daydream and come out of your commentary and just really remember, <laughs> remember. And to recognize means to taste something in the pre taste the present moment and just to see what the flavor is for you. What's the flavor of the present moment? That's to observe and to recognize. So if you remember, to recognize the present moment. Now the thing about object-oriented practice is we aim our attention to an object, like the breath of the belly or the nostrils, or when our attention is called to discomfort in the body, we aim our attention to that sensation. So that becomes the object that we're paying attention to. But the attention and the awareness is also happening in the present moment. So you could equally well, instead of paying attention to the object, you could recognize the awareness. This is what Utejaniya does. This is happening in every moment. A lot of object-oriented practices to emphasize this and, not, and hardly recognize this. Utejaniya turns it just the other way around. Something is being known this is going to change, and you don't have to pay too much attention to that. Recognize this, though. That's really important. So he just says, any object, but recognize this. So in the present moment, both of these are happening. You can focus on the object, which is object-oriented practice, or you can recognize the awareness, which I call awareness-oriented practice. These are my terms. Object-oriented, awareness, awareness-oriented. Yeah. That's, how, that's what remembering to recognize present moments. Can you talk about working with pain and how that... It seems like it could just be maddening if you're focusing your awareness on the pain. And so, like, what, what do you yeah. do there? Okay, so, you know, we all experience pain. 
and some of it is uh, physical pain, like trauma pain, accident, you know, bruises, operations, stuff like that. I'm not going to talk about that piece. I'm going to talk about the pain that comes because of our mind. So when we sit still and pay attention, or the mind, the, the body's going to get achy, isn't it? It gets uncomfortable. You know, it doesn't want to. It wants to move around. Wants to keep. You know. So when we feel that kind of pain, we can. You know, our attention is called to it automatically, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Automatic. You don't have to kind of go looking for it. It calls your attention. So the, the question is, what do we do? How do we work with it, you're saying? How do we work with this pain you know, that, that's calling our attention, right? So the first understanding, or the, the first... Okay, let me start from the object-oriented. The object-oriented practice would say, when your attention is called to pain, focus on the pain. Get close to it. Go into it. You know, see through the illusion that this is my knee and see that it's just this massive, twisting, hot, vibrating hardness, you know, that's excruciating, right? So you get close, and getting close magnifies the appearance of it. So if something's painful and you get close to it, it gets magnified pain. But there's a way of slipping through the idea of my knee hurts to... Wow, this is intense unpleasantness, but I can be with it. So if you can do that, that's okay. But a lot of times you can't. It's like it's too painful. Don't want to get close to it. So what Sayadrutajani would say is, don't. You don't have to focus on the pain. Yeah, it's calling your attention, but instead recognize the awareness of it. So these are both happening, and sometimes you go pain, bingo, pain. No. Pain is an excruciating. I hate this pain. My knee's killing me. It's being known. Right? But he's saying, switch it around. Discomfort's being known. This unpleasantness is really uh, being known. You know, emphasize the knowing element so that the object becomes just a light, a light object rather than the focus of your attention. And if you, if you can do that, then the recognition of the awareness can be with the discomfort because we're not focusing on it. But that takes a lot of uh, understanding. The way we can do that is the understanding we need is, you know, the nature of the body is to is to be painful. You know, you know, and if we sit still and pay attention, even if you're in the most ergonomically designed chair, the body will be really uncomfortable within 20 minutes. So it's not, it's not that you're doing something wrong. It's not that, you know, there's something wrong with your body. No, it's just that's the nature of the body, you know. So how to work with it is you can focus on it and magnify it, or you can recognize the awareness, keep the object light, having the understanding of this is the nature of the body, or recognizing the awareness of it. If in, you know, in the course of a, a long sitting, a 45-minute sitting or something, you had, you met, some discomfort after 20 minutes or something. I wouldn't sit if it was really excruciating and you were just going, you, you know, you're getting tight about it. If your mind is getting tight about it, then I wouldn't. I wouldn't shift. I would shift the posture so that, as much as possible, you let the body be comfortable and you let the mind be comfortable. And when the body's comfortable, the mind is likes to be aware. But when the body's uncomfortable, the mind the mind doesn't want to be doesn't want to know that. It goes, in, it goes off somewhere else. 
So cytotagenia, I always suggest, make check that the body's relaxed, that the body's comfortable, and the mind is relaxed. Now, when I say to relax your body, you know how to do that. You know, if I say, no, relax, relax. And you just go, oh, yeah, oh, right. Oh, yeah, okay, you know. Yeah, let me just kind of relax. But now if I say relax your mind, what do you do? <laughs> or something, you know. But that's not how you relax your mind. The way you relax your mind is let go in your mind of any agenda, any trying to do anything. Let go of trying to do anything. You don't have to try to focus. You don't have to try to be with this instead of that. You don't have to try to figure anything out. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to kind of justify the pain or figure out the pain or even figure out what you're going to do with your meditation to, to get rid of the pain. If you just accept, oh, this is the way it is for now, huh. this is normal. This is a natural occurrence in the body. There's nothing wrong with me or wrong with the body. It's just this is the way it is. And you have to be aware of it. Okay. Is that okay? Well, yeah, but it's painful. Oh, okay, so when you get some, I don't like it coming into the mind, I'd like to get rid of it, then you have to recognize that is the, the torment of aversion, isn't it? Anger, irritation, impatience is coming into the mind. So when the discomfort of the body is being observed and there's some aversion arising, it's like a filter arises in the mind called aversion. And when you look through that aversion to this object, the object looks really unpleasant. And the, the state of mind now becomes the new object. Leave that. The new object is, oh, irritation. Oh, what's, what's the nature of irritation? Because remember, that's the present moment's experience. So we're remembering to recognize the new present moment's experience, which is aversion. Now let's be with the experience of aversion. And we can do that. And maybe the, 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 the pain piece is kind of in the background. Aversion is in the foreground. But check your attitude of mind. The attitude of mind is usually when uh, pain arises in the body, we want to get rid of it. <laughs> we just want to get out of there. This is bothering my practice. But actually, there's some wrong understanding there. Pain doesn't really bother your practice. You have the wrong idea about practice. Practice isn't to just kind of sit in bliss all the time. Well, it'd be nice sometimes. But it's to see things as they are. And if something's unpleasant, then, okay, can we be with it? You know? But sometimes we get this attitude that I have to get rid of the pain before I can actually be do my practice. Or when we get caught up in an emotional snarl, I gotta get rid of this anger before I can do my practice. I gotta get rid of this sleepiness before I can do my practice. I gotta get rid of this, you know, whatever, right? But actually, those mental states that arise to kind of filter everything we're looking at, those mental states are the very place to practice because we're not yet able to be with them. And especially, you'll notice when you think, when you think, I've got to change my experience so that I can practice better. Then you know, okay, you're overlooking, you're denying, you're trying to get away from, you're missing something. So just turn and look at it. What is actually going on here? This is something that I'm not yet able to be aware of, particularly pain and the reaction to it, 
impatience, irritation, frustration, self-judgment, doubt about how to practice. Is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you say to focus your attention on awareness, it's... No, I'm not saying focus. I never said focus oh, your I'm attention sorry. Well, on awareness. I said recognize. Be easy with my words choice. Um, I'm having a hard time phrasing the question. Um, it seems like it's always indirect. Like we're not actually... We're not actually looking at the awareness. We're looking at what the awareness is looking at and noticing that it's being looked at. And so we don't directly ever put our like. I get I get confused with some of the teachers when they're yeah. saying look at the awareness because yeah. I'm like I can't see it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, you know some 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 teachers say something like uh, be aware of awareness or be mindful of awareness or. Uh, something like that, or look at awareness, and I don't say that because I saw myself when I first heard about, you know, recognizing awareness. Then I thought, well, object being known, object and awareness, object and awareness. I thought, well, if I'm going to look at awareness, I got to go. Mm, mm. <laughs> I got to turn around and look at awareness, and we can't do that. So okay, so then I would try that for a while. And then I thought, oh no, what they mean is this object. Awareness, and there's another awareness over here that's kind of noticing this awareness. And sometimes it seems like that that you know we're being aware, hearing, you know, right now we're hearing the sound of the white noise. Do you know that you're hearing the sound of the white noise? And are you aware that you're aware of the white noise? What do you have to do to do that? Yeah. So, really, I'm going to give you a secret. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> Most mindfulness practice is object and awareness. Object and awareness. And when we have an object like the breath or physical sensations, we really can isolate it and kind of see it, and it has its own qualities. And right, or even when we have uh, an emotion, you know, it's not tangible so much, but well, sometimes there are sensations or feeling in the heart, and we can. Think. But awareness of awareness or recognizing awareness isn't making awareness the object. Okay, we're not making awareness the object. So it's not like in making this the object. Recognizing awareness is a wisdom. It's an understanding. <laughs> I can see you going. <laughs> but, you know, because, you know, we think, oh, be aware of awareness. We think, oh, well, I'm going to make awareness just like an object like the breath or sound or a thought. And that's not what, that's not what you do with recognizing awareness. Recognizing awareness is an understanding in this itself. So here's the object, here's the awareness, and sometimes there is the recognition of this awareness in it. That's an understanding in this activity of mind. Sometimes the recognition is of the object. So we recognize the object and we know, oh, this is breathing in and it's like this, it's tight, pressure, whatever. And then we're doing that. But the recognizing of this 
is an understanding in the mind that's agreeable. I know that's a little hard to understand. The mind is very subtle compared to sensations, thoughts, emotions, mental states. Recognizing the activity of mind and knowing the activity of the mind is very, very subtle. Very easy to get confused about, not see, not be able to recognize. So it takes some practice. And the way that I would suggest or recommend beginning to recognize this awareness or recognizing the activity of the mind, the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind nature of the mind is a kind of a technical term used in the Tibetan tradition. But nevertheless, I use it anyway. It still means, what's the nature of the mind? The nature of the mind is to know. What does the mind do? It thinks and feels. That's what the mind does. It thinks and feels. But the nature of it is to feel, to think. So, when we say the... When we want to recognize awareness, we have to recognize the feeling or the thinking, knowing capacity of the mind. So the way to do that is to ask yourself, what is your attitude of mind? As you sit here right now, and you're listening to me talk, what is your attitude of mind? I'm not asking, what is your reaction to what I'm, or relationship to what I'm saying? You might be interested, you might be bored, but what is the energy with which you are listening? What is your attitude of mind? I can see several attitudes of mind. Curious? Doubtful, questioning, hesitant, fascinating. What? And my my distinctive my my not yet patented, but I should get it patented. Uh, way of never mind. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay. Way of recognizing your attitude of mind. Okay. Take your cell phone. Take a selfie. <laughs> make it into an emoji. What's it saying? If I did that, selfie, look at your face, what's it saying? Happy? What's this, what's this attitude of mind? Focusing? Looking? Obsessed? What's this one? Skeptical? Hesitant? What's this one? Disinterested? So we can... We can recognize our own attitude of mind by just imagining what our face is saying to those around us. Sometimes we get. How do I do that? What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) You covered it a while ago. Because it comes up so much and just. You're, you're kind of right there. Do you want to say something you know, in that you called it the, you know, an understanding, right? An understanding can arise about awareness. Do you want to relate that to, because there's so much talk in Buddhism about the anatta quality, the impersonal nature quality, and that deepening understanding of what awareness is and isn't? Is, is, that, is this a good time to sort of say sure. a few words about that, Steve? Sure. Uh, let me back up. When we try to be mindful, a lot of mindfulness instruction is very technique-oriented. Focus your attention on the object, connect your attention to it, sustain your attention on it, and recognize it. Those are all 
active, active activities. Focus, turn, look, connect, sustain, recognize. Those are things that you can do. And so it seems like mindfulness is I practice mindfulness. I do something to be mindful. Awareness practice is different because Uteshaniya almost never offers any technique. He doesn't tell you what to do. He just keeps talking about awareness. You know, recognizing this, this knowing capacity of mind as you sit here. You don't have to do anything. You just have to recognize it. And if you try to do something, what you'll recognize is you're trying. You know, that's not awareness. That's trying. So, it's like, <coughs> this mind is knowing all the time, isn't it? You know, and if we just recognize, oh, the, the knowing is happening all the time. That's awareness. So, if we can, if we can train ourselves to remind ourselves, recognize the knowing that's going on, recognize the attitude of mind, recognize awareness, when we talk about awareness, uh, then you can see that, oh, every time, once you recognize awareness, once you have kind of got a, got a sense of what awareness is, then every time you, re every time you look for it, it's there. Every time. If you ask yourself, am I aware? You will be. Every time. But you can't assume that it's always happening. That's an assumption. Because we're not always aware. So, if we recognize that every time I ask, is the mind aware, and we see that it is, then you recognize that, huh, that's happening without me doing anything except inquiring, is it happening? I'm not making awareness happen. You're not making awareness happen. You're just recognizing that it is happening. So in that sense, that points to what you're inquiring about is like the anatta characteristic. It can be hard. It can, there's a lot of confusion around the anatta characteristic, but essentially it means that things happen. Uh, maybe the best way to say it is things happen without us intentionally doing it. Well, it's like a lot of things just happen, you know, and we just we just get to experience them. We don't we don't make them happen. And so, let me back up. Saito Tejaniya says, uh, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. What does that mean? The mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Well, right now, if somebody came in the door screaming about why is it Steve Armstrong in that other room? You advertised he was going to be in that room tonight, and I came specifically for him. Okay, now, if, if somebody came in and did that, your mind would be taken over by that activity. Wouldn't what you were hearing and the energy of it, you would not. Have, you would lose your mind into that, that energy of that intervention. Your mind, you, you, you don't control what your mind does. Your mind is just going to notice what it notices. And so... Our minds get hijacked all the time from what we would choose to do. So in that sense, our mind is not ours. It's like it's easily hijacked by any you know, memory, thought, emotion, external event, anything. And so what the mind knows is not your choice. So it means, well, 
mind is not yours. You can't control it. If something is yours, it's yours. You can do what you want. This is my phone. This is my phone. I can do it what I want. I can use it or not use it. I can throw it away. I can give it away. Oh, you know. And it's mine. I own it. And we think that we own our body. We think that we own our mind. But all kinds of things happen to our body that we would prefer not to happen. We would like to be able to control our body. We would like to tell. We would like to be able to say, "Body, be comfortable." But it doesn't. We'd like to say, body, be healthy. And it doesn't. It gets sick. No, body, don't be tired. I gotta do something now. That I gotta be awake. And it just gets tired. So what makes us think we control the body? We don't control the body. We're just kind of a tenant, you know, in this thing. And so we could say the body's not yours, but you're still responsible for it. You gotta take care of it. Same with the mind. The mind is going to do its knowing. It's going to keep knowing whether you whether you like it or not. So, but once the mind knows something, once you know the emotion arises in the mind, or once the external something in the environment calls your attention, then you got to deal with it. You know, if you get angry, you got to deal with it. If it's upsetting, you got to deal with it. You got to be responsible for how you respond to what's going on in the mind. If you're not if you're not being a mindful, you'll just react out of deeply conditioned habits. If you are being mindful, then you get a, you get a chance to choose how to respond to what's going on. But if you're if you're not being mindful, you just you know, old habits take over, and you'll think that's me, my mind, my body, but neither one is yours to do to control. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm still a little fuzzy in terms of, um, you know, you talked about attitude, like recognizing the attitude in the mind. Yeah. So is there a part of the knowing mind that isn't colored by attitude? You know what I mean? Yes, yeah, sure. Can, can you just talk sure. about that? One, so the question is about, uh, is there a part of the observing mind that is not an attitude? Well, I've been talking about mostly unskillful attitudes, expectation, anticipation, you know, trying, you know, trying to figure something out, making it happen. If we look instead at what, what is the, what would be the wholesome attitudes or the, uh, I guess we would call it wholesome attitudes of mind, that would allow awareness to function quite spontaneously or continuously. And I, I point to these as saying, you know, check your attitude of mind. See if you can be open. I'm going I'm to demonstrate the, 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 what I call the wholesome attitudes of mind. Open, receptive, allowing, interested, responsive, patient, acknowledging. It's like, okay, right. You recognize for the moment? Right. Are you receiving it? Right. Are you open to it? Right. Can you acknowledge it? Right. Can you be patient with it? Are you willing to be there with it? Yes. If there's an unskillful attitude, it's like you're trying to make something happen, you're skeptical about it, you're pushing it away, or you're kind of like bored, or you're sleepy. So just demonstratively, you can see that if, if we can monitor our attitudes of mind, and have a wholesome 
series of collection of open, allowing, receptive, then we don't have to do them. We don't have to try to be open. We don't have to try to be receptive. We just have to recognize that the mind is like that anyway. But because our mind isn't always like that, it's often caught in our, you know, I call it our mental posture of skepticism, depression, frustration, unwillingness to experience life. We're just kind of like, ah, another day, you know, that kind of attitude. Then we think that, oh, having a wholesome attitude of mind is like hard work. Actually, that's how the mind would be. We're working hard to, be, to have an unwholesome attitude of mind, habits of mind, just being skeptical, frustrated, disappointed. So the whole knowing activity of the mind is, the mind is open, allowing. Uh, interested sounds like a personal choice, but mind is open. In the, uh, in the uh, I guess I'll call it the Mahayana tradition of uh, recognizing the mind, the nature of mind, uh, a lot of times they point to just the, the nature of mind, the knowing capacity of the mind, which is open, allowing, open to everything. So it's allowing everything. There's not a question of hesitancy or uh, hesitancy or doubt about being there for this moment. So instead of this kind of attitude, it's like this attitude. It's not this attitude. It's not this attitude. It's like we'll see, we'll see, because the mind the mind can know anything. And this is a good question to ask yourself when you're having. When you're practicing and you have some experience, uh, if you recognize the experience is unpleasant or something you're impatient with or don't like, that, that's okay. I mean, you know, there's unpleasant experiences, and we can say, "I don't, I don't like this. I don't want this. It's, you know, it's, it's whatever." But instead of asking you is about the instead of asking yourself about the nature of the experience, ask yourself about the nature of the awareness. Is it okay to be aware of this? Oh, yeah, because you're already aware of it, you know? But we don't have to like it, but we have to just recognize that awareness, awareness doesn't care if you like it or not. If it's pleasant or unpleasant, awareness doesn't make any distinction between pleasant or unpleasant, whether you would like it or not. It just knows everything. So if we get out of the way, if our habits of mind get out of the way, then the open, Allowing, receptive, acknowledging, present, connectedness with everything, activity of the mind can be known. Is that? Well, maybe I'll, I'll be more specific. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, just so. in talking about the condition and the unconditioned. Oh, yeah. How does that relate? You know, the know when we talk about the knowing mind, right? It's, yeah. There's different ways. Okay. I get it. All right. Uh, well, I'm a... I'm a Died in the world. I think I don't know what I don't know where that phrase comes from. But I'm a died in the world Theravadan. You know, and my idea of the unconditioned is deeply, deeply conditioned by <laughs> the Theravadan view of the unconditioned. And so it doesn't. Uh, sometimes, uh, some teachers and maybe even some traditions will suggest that the knowing capacity of the mind is unconditioned. That this is just un- knowing is unconditioned. And that um, if we can get out of the way of kind of mucking it up, so to speak, 
then we just kind of rest in the unconditioned, knowing everything that's going on and not getting caught in any reaction to it. That's not the Theravada view. That's something else. Um, I don't argue with I don't argue with that because I think that we all use across the spectrum of teachers and traditions and even different uh, you know Mahayana, Hinayana, Vajrayana, you know all the yanas. Uh, we use the same words. We use the same words like mindfulness, uh, samadhi. Uh, Conditioned, unconditioned, etc., etc., except we have very different experiences that they refer to. And so, while someone may say, "Oh, this this consciousness that is just there all the time, doing its knowing, is unconditioned," well, I can't argue with that because every time you look at it, that's what it seems like. So experientially, we say, "Yeah," but that's. That's that teacher's definition of the word unconditioned. Other teachers won't use the word unconditioned for that. They would say, oh, that is different. That's, you know, consciousness, but it's not unconditioned. That it is, it is conditioned. So you have to kind of, when you hear uh, different teachers using familiar words, especially if it's from a different tradition or an un, uh, a different sect within one jnana or different jnana, then you have to kind of find out what the experience is. I'll give you an example. So when I went to practice with uh, Tuko Ergen, who's pointing out instruction, father of Sokni, father of Mindyur, father of a couple of other Tukos, uh, he uses the language of uh, uh, Rigpa. Well, Rigpa we don't have Rikpa in Theravada. We don't, at least we don't have something that corresponds to it. So I was a little bit confused, like, Rikpa, what the heck is that, you know? And I, I got the pointing out instruction and I would try and then see. So the closest thing I could come to was, it seems like it's like this. So I went to Sokin, and I said, okay, this is my experience. And I described my experience of what in him this tradition would be highly developed Sankarupekanyana, equanimity with uh, consciousness as the object. Okay. This is what's going on. And in Theravada, we wouldn't call that the unconditioned. And he says, well, that's Rikpa. I didn't use the word Rikpa, but when I described that, he said, oh, that's Rikpa. But if I had gone and said, oh, I, I think this is high equanimity, he wouldn't have recognized what I was talking about. So when I did that, then I realized, oh, they're using different, they have, they're using the same words, but they have a different meaning. They're referring to a different experience than we in the Theravada tradition refer to. So it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just we're using different language, and we've got to learn to translate. So when when you do go to different teachers, or when you, when you hear somebody using words that you think you know what they mean, often it's helpful to ask them, what experience are you referring to when you say samadhi, or when you say vipassana? That's another one. Vipassana and, uh, vipassana and uh, samatha. Very different meanings in Tibetan and Theravada. Very different, different experiences. Use same word, 
a different experience. So funny. When they were talking, when the Tibetans were talking about Vipassana, I listened and I said, huh, that's not what I would call Vipassana. But I, I didn't want, I'm, I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying their understanding is different than Theravada understanding. So take some, take some pretty fine discernment in trying to understand what the experience is that the word is referring to. So when you talk about unconditioned, that's another one of those words that gets used with maybe different experiences in mind by different teachers who use the word. So. Does the Theravadin recognize unconditioned? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The unconditioned. Well, from now now I have to make a distinction between. I don't know the Thai tradition that well. But I know it's a lot like Utejaniyas, and I think there's, I, I think they use. I'm not sure whether they use this kind of resting in awareness, what we call resting in awareness, as the unconditioned, and that would not be that would not be the unconditioned in, in Burma. That would not be unconditioned. So, and just so people have a little background, <clears throat> so common ground and places like common ground. Highly influenced by Mahasi Saida, which is the tradition Steve practiced in Burma for many years, the Saida Pandita. And also Swayo Min comes out of the Mahasi tradition and he's the teacher of Saida Utejaniya. And then Kamra is also deeply influenced by the Thai Force tradition, Ajahn Man, Ajahn Chah, and a lot of the Western monastics and, and nun, uh, nuns and monks. And they tend to also use. And I think Ajahn Sumedho's gotten a little bit more careful. Well, he'll talk about being in the vicinity of the unconditioned with this resting in awareness. Um, so he's kind of started to clarify it. But they definitely talk about like Buddha as the one who knows and, and using words like the unconditioned with that sort of unrestricted awareness. Yeah. yeah. That, so it's confusing. Yeah, it's not to say that one is right or wrong. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. like there's different, different experiences being pointed to. You know, and so there is there is a lot of care now with how we just so we don't get so sectarian. You know, it's like we got the right unconditioned, you got something else. You know, you know that gets it gets messy and it doesn't lead to any clarification. It just gets polarized. So we we in in, in this tradition have had to be careful about use of words and have had to suggest that you know, even with Utejaniya. When I first went to Utejaniya, oh, he was dissing the Mahasi method like it was the reason he came into the world. You know, <laughs> and so we had to say, you know, that's not so skillful. <laughs> you know, a lot of us put in a lot of years there, and it doesn't mm -hmm. sound right. It sounds like you're just being, you know, kind of sectarian about this. And so he's modified his language a lot. But it, it, it was... It was useful for him because he got a lot of, what would you call, Mahasi dropouts. People who couldn't or didn't want to practice with Bandita had their reasons for not doing it. They come to there and they're complaining about, oh, focusing and too much effort and that and that. And so he was saying, oh, yeah, you don't have to focus. You don't have to know. You don't have to label. You don't have to. Ah. No, so he's not implicit. But he was pretty explicit about dissing the Mahasi techniques. So that was, I had to kind of talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and we all get 
we all get talked to because we use our language until we're informed of how other traditions and other people use their language. You have to, you can be stepping on toes or you know, criticizing without even knowing it. So you have to be careful. We had a question a while ago. Yeah, still around question. So <laughs> everyone could ask. Okay. Um. So I'll ask it in order, and you can add this, which I um, well, one at a time. I can't remember okay, two. One at, time. one at a time. Yeah. You don't have to go in that order. Though. Okay. One question is why practice? What practice? Yeah. So I'd like you to address it. Um, but in this way of practicing, as you were talking about awareness and um, being aware of awareness and so on and so forth, and being open in the attitude and just being yeah. open. So to be open, you have to actually somehow recognized to, that's helpful, right? Uh, anyway, how do you transition from practicing, like again, just can be aware there's white noise and so on, to understanding things, you know, like this is good, not good, this makes sense. How do you actually, I mean, if you were great and you can pay attention and, and pay attention to all this shit that's going on, it doesn't do anything. How do you actually transform that into understanding? Into understanding. And then third question. So you can answer whichever one you want. Third question. If like for new people, this is my nephew. This is my first day. His first day. It's good. He's jumping in at the graduate level. I know. <laughs> so good luck. <laughs> so for for people that that. Um, what is practice, or what is what is this whole thing? How do you actually? I mean, I know that I only follow my own experience of how I understood anatta and whatever, and try to use that, but it may not work. Like, how do you actually? What's useful in that understanding for people to be like break it down in a way? If I was a teacher, I would like to understand like what's one on one, what's PhD. Yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, Saito Tejani is great at this. You know, people come to him saying, I don't want to meditate. I'm not going to meditate. What are you doing here? He says, I don't have to meditate. We're just, you know, uh, recognizing what's going on here. What's going on? What's going on for you? Yeah, well, I'm angry. I, you know, I, I, don't, I want to know what I'm doing here. Yeah, well, do you recognize that? You know, and it just kind of picks up Right where you're at, whatever, whatever you're, how, whatever got you here, that's it. Let's talk about that. What's going on in here? And eventually, in from from one tradition, from one position, you know, are you suffering? You know, and that's a big word. A lot of people can be suffering and not know it. I I, I couldn't recognize it. You know, suffering. So, rather than explain how somebody should practice. If you talk about why we practice, you know that, and try to try to pick some common experience that everyone, you know, has. You know, do you ever find yourself uh, kind of halfway through the day on automatic pilot? Yeah, we all we all find ourselves on automatic pilot. You know, you get in the car, you go from here to there, you get there, and you don't remember anything about the drive. You don't remember getting there. I mean, you get there, but you don't remember it. What's going on there? I don't know. Were you aware? Uh, I was aware enough to drive. Yeah, but did, 
but you didn't. Okay. So usually there's some way you can hook into what people's experience is, mm-hmm. and then just have them pick up, pick them up there. Or, you know, right now I would say, you know, if, you know, mm-hmm. how you doing? Good. Yeah, are you happy? There. Are you understand what's going on? <laughs> okay, is that okay? I think so. Yeah, think so. Do you know what your experience is? I do. You do. So is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I'm not side rotation yet, but that's where I would begin. That is safe. Do you know that your legs and feet, your feet are crossed underneath your chair? Yes. Now, when did you become aware of that? Second and Just right then? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what else is going on in your mind that you are just going to be, just going to recognize as soon as I ask you what's going on in your mind? <laughs> Do you feel self-conscious now that I'm... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, it's just, it's just a way of uh, trying to get people to recognize something about their own experience and then just and just picking them up right there and why why we practice Shelley gave a great talk on why we practice at the retreat it'll be up online soon you can listen to that no <laughs> yeah I think because I mean from from my perspective I see all kinds of reasons to practice it but from someone who's skeptical, or not, not necessarily skeptical, but just kind of like agnostically interested. Well, what is this? What, what is it you're doing here? Well, then I would be very slow about, uh, well, I wouldn't lay out any dogma or anything like that. I would just be very slow about, well, <coughs> some, something got you here. Why did you come to, you know, if they came to a public talk, what got you here? And then just find out what what was going on in their mind that kind of tempted them to come to a public talk or sign up for a workshop or a class. Because actually there's some, there's already some interest in their mind, some level of uh, wanting to know something more about themselves, and if you kind of, if you can kind of ad- help them identify that, that oh, you want to know more about yourself through whatever this course is going to offer, then you can get into well, what is it that you need to know? Why, why is this? Why do you need to know more about yourself? Well, I'm not happy, and you know, the, you know, or whatever, and and that way you can follow the follow their thread into their mind, into their heart, into their mind, whatever. <clears throat> and I think picking, rather than asking students to come to you, you go to them. And that's not how they do it in birth. A lot of, a lot of teachers, you know, will, they've got, they got their, this is different than mutation, a lot, a lot of teachers have their, their shtick. And if you hear about it and you want it, you come to them, and they don't come to you. I mean, they don't they don't come to your mind. They expect you to step up to their practice. 
but we in the West are more inside rotation. It's more like, why are you here? Let's go from there. I think it's really important. And I ask that question almost at the beginning of almost all my retreats, just for people to consider it. Why are you here? What, what, what motivated you to come to this retreat at this time, to this class, to this public talk, whatever it is? Why are you here? Because there's some, there's some inkling of interest, investigation, wisdom, curiosity, self-knowledge that's being activated when somebody follows this. Because, as you know, there's a lot of people that hear about meditation, whatever, no interest whatsoever to follow. I have a brother and two sisters, and they know I've been doing this for 40-some years and teaching for 25 years, was in Burma for five years. They never asked me anything. They don't ask me anything about mindfulness meditation. didn't ask me anything about five years in Burma, nothing. Just no interest whatsoever. It's like, that's just unfathomable to me. But I see it, you know. And, and incidentally, they all could use it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to approach them with, you know, I got something you could use. They just say, that's weird, Steve. <laughs> so, what was the other question? Why do we practice? How um, do you transform how do you from this practice to understanding? Oh, understanding. You know, the, the, I'm going to say something that the Buddha said, or Sariputta said. The Buddha said, and the Sariputta confirmed that, you have to hear what, let me back up. If you wanted to go to visit a foreign country in a certain city or a certain village, in that country, one of the things you would do is get a map and try to find it. Where is this place on the map? And you'd look at how you're going to get there. I'm going to take the train to here, or a flight today, and a train and a car, and I'm going to walk, and I'm going to, you know, and you're going to follow the path, and you're going to recognize some of the landmarks and some of the uh, distinctive features of the journey to get to this place. Well, the same thing occurs when we come to practice, or we come to the Dharma, or we come to know that there's something we don't know about ourselves. Now we want a map. How do I get there? How do I find what I'm looking for? And so the map, in this case, is the teachings of the Buddha. So what is it in the teachings of the Buddha that serves as a map? And the first element is what's called right view. Right view is, how do you understand what you're looking for, even? So you hear it, but you don't have the experience yet, but you hear about it. And the Buddha said that you can't arrive at this understanding, you know, if you don't hear about what the nature of this village is that you want to discover, you won't ever recognize it. You have to hear about it. It looks like this, it's located here, it's got these kind of features, and so... Once you know that, then you can wander around and you can, you know, and you'll recognize, oh, this is close, that's almost it, no, it's not this one. Oh, there it is, that's it. Because you've heard the description of it, you, you have heard what the right view is, or how to understand it. So the same thing with this that we're looking for, whether it's wisdom, or happiness, or contentment, or a sense of well-being, or less suffering, I'll 
or joy or whatever, however you articulate it. When you hear the map, when you read or you hear about the map of the Buddha's teachings that can point to it, then you can then you can understand, then you can practice in whatever way you want to practice, and then you'll recognize. And then you'll understand, oh, that is the way to get there. Oh, this is, then I understand. Oh, the way to get from here to this unknown place is to follow the map. But initially, when you only have the map, it's just an idea. After you've taken the journey, then you understand. So, in our practice, we hear instructions, we get suggestions, we hear all kinds of dhamma talks, read books. But they're all ideas, aren't they? There's no understanding. There's, 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 I guess you call it intellectual understanding. There's book knowledge. And that's part of it. Without that, you can't get experiential knowledge. So there's the book knowledge, which is called uh, Suttamaya Panya. The knowledge, that, the wisdom that comes from other people's experiences. You either hear it or you read it. You get it from somebody else. Mm-hmm. But then as you think about that, if you looked at a map and you didn't think about it and you just started walking, <laughs> you wouldn't, you, you probably wouldn't be following the map very well. You have to use your intelligence. You have to kind of think about, now, how do I how do I look at this map? Which way is north? Oh, it's that way. Oh, I thought I had to go down that street. No, i got to go down that street because i got to orient the map. So you have to intelligently think about what you've heard or what you've read. That's another layer of understanding. There's what you've read is one layer of understanding. The chintamaya panya, which is the, the understanding of the wisdom that comes from thinking. So you have the book knowledge, which is Suttamaya Panya, you have the thinking about it, which is the Chintamaya Panya, and Panya's wisdom. And then you have Bhavanamaya Panya. Bhavana is the development of the mind. As you develop the mind, in this case, uh, concentration, or mindfulness, insight, then you have the understanding from your development of mind, that is your empirical experience, but the experience itself is not the understanding. But it's how you understand your experience in relation to Suttamaya Panya and Chintamaya Panya. So, with the three of those, Sutta, Chinta, and Bhavanamaya Panya, then you have understanding. Then you have genuine, self realized understanding. And since it's from yourself, it's wisdom. It's not just knowledge, it's wisdom. If it's from somebody else, it's knowledge. It's their wisdom, but your knowledge. Anything else? No, I'm good. That's <laughs> helpful. <laughs> ah, I had my doubts there. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Who hasn't asked their question yet? <laughs> On the talk tonight. So you have knowing object, and then you have knowing object. Yeah. Right? And so, it, um, and then you have the filters in between, yeah. right? Yeah. So don't both paths lead you to the appropriate response? Appropriate response. And appropriate response, like the relationship between knowing and the object, yeah. or even the filter. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question, but first I got to give you a little prep work. Okay. So the. Um, the bhavanamaya panya that I just spoke about, the, the wisdom, when we get to the wisdom piece, 
That's what we're talking about. You know, can't can't this reveal wisdom and can't this reveal wisdom and can't this reveal wisdom? Yes, it can. But what is the knowledge that we're trying to get to? You have to remember that the Buddha's bottom line, when the Buddha was asked, what do you teach? He said, I only teach one thing, suffering. And suffering and the end of suffering. It sounds like two, but if you know what suffering is, you know what the end of suffering is. That's all he taught. Okay, so from that lens, we have to look at, well, what, what do we need to know about this in order to know suffering and the end of suffering? So, when we focus on an object, and we recognize the object, and even when we go into it and we pixelate this knee pain into just random pixels of phenomena that are just appearing somewhere in the universe, not my knee, not even pain, it's just stuff. What's the value of that? Well, we know, that we know the nature of pain is not what we initially thought, but instead it's this, well... Uh, rapidly fluxing, impersonal stuff that right? is very unpleasant. Okay, so what I just said was they have the care. This this experience has the characteristic or the nature of impermanence. Right? It has the nature of dukkha, unsatisfactory, right? and it has the nature of uh, it. It's just kind of, it's created out of other, this knee pain is created out of just pixels of sensation. It has no inherent thing. We call that no no knee self. There's no self in that knee. I know self sounds like a weird language, but there's no, there's no, so, there's no solid entity there. It's just three characteristics, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and conditioned. That's it. That's all there is. What's the value of understanding that the knee pain has the characteristic of impermanence, unsatisfactory, and, and conditioned. Well, when we see that, and we get this understanding, we can step back from the mistaken belief that my pain is killing me. I hate that knee pain, and I want to get rid of it. We stop suffering with me and my knee being painful, and we see this is just impersonal stuff happening. Now, it does, from just one experience of seeing the impersonal stuff is happening, we don't really free our, free our mind, but we begin to loosen the grip of this conditioning that I am my body, I am my mind, I'm suffering. Okay? But once you see that a hundred thousand times, then you've got a body that is just kind of pixelated phenomena happening somewhere in the universe, it's pretty unsatisfactory, it's impermanent and not solid. Yeah, so what? We don't get identified with it. And so we actually free the sense of self from, well, wrong understanding. Because now we, now we see things clearly. We understand it. So we can do that with the object. We can also do it with this filter. We can see that this impermanent or this uh, aversion or this desire, my desire, I want, my fear, my, I'm, you know, I'm afraid. So once you look at fear or the nature of fear, the characteristic of fear, you, you find its true nature. You see, this doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, it's just stuff happening. Again, it's just thoughts and memories and sensations and perceptions that are just, you know, disassembling the mind is a little more challenging than disassembling leaping. But nevertheless, we can get in there and we can see, it's not my fear. It's not my pain. This is just happening due to causes and conditions, which I don't control. 
So it's like fear arises. That's the nature of fear. It's not my fear. Everybody experiences it the same way. If these, if you were experiencing these conditions, it would feel like fear to you too. Oh, okay. So once you see that, you see through this illusion of it's my fear, it's my desire, it's my frustration, it's my suffering, then, again, you free yourself from suffering. You don't get rid of the body, you don't get rid of sensations, you don't get rid of pleasant and unpleasant. Those things still exist, but you're not identified with it as my suffering. Okay? So now, here's the object, here's the filter, now we have awareness. So initially, when we start looking at awareness, we think, I'm being aware. I'm, I'm the one who's aware. And so we get identified with that. But as you keep noticing the activity of awareness and keep recognizing it at different times, soon you'll come to recognize, oh, this this awareness is also impermanent. It's also unsatisfying. It's, it's, it's not steady. It's not stable. It's not reliable. And it's also conditioned. It just it just happens. You know, I, I can't make it happen. I can't stop it from happening. It's just, it's got a life of its own. So once you see that, those three characteristics of awareness itself, then you realize, well, I'm not awareness either. So whether the awareness is there or not, you don't suffer. So by that point, if you've done that to the object, you've done that to the mental states, you've done that to awareness, where are you? You're not. Life is happening. Life is being experienced. Everything about Everything that we experience is still happening. You don't disappear. You don't, uh, you know, kind of ascend to anything. You don't, you know, you just stop suffering. That's that's the understanding that we're getting to through this practice. Recognition of these three characteristics will show you that life goes on, <coughs> and while it does have the char dukkha characteristic, the sense of self is not suffering. We don't suffer with with these experiences of objects, mind, or awareness itself. Here's another question. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm just thinking of that poor guy up there thinking, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> Man. <laughs> That's okay. How would you define the difference between knowing, awareness, and consciousness? Because consciousness is an aggregate. I, I, I don't get into that. Uh, probably because, you know, we, we, Dharma teachers use the word consciousness, knowing, mindfulness, awareness, attention, and a few other things, kind of synonymously, and however one person uses it would have to be defined. So, you know, when, you, when team teaching on the three-month course... When I would teach with Joseph, Sharon, and you know Stephen, Michelle, or Carol, or whoever it is, we would have to define how we're going to use, which word we're going to use to point to this experience. Because some people say, oh, that's consciousness. Some people say, oh, that's awareness. Okay, let's, what are we going to, let's agree, so that we're using the same language with the same understanding for this group of students at this time. So there's no, there's no one right answer. It's just how do you choose to use it and what experience are you pointing to? But, you know, you can go to something like the Abhidhamma and you'll find a very detailed descriptions and definitions and stuff like that, but it's not always functionally useful. 
My question was, was similar, actually, about this awareness, remembering, observing, being intimate with present moment experience and um, investigation, which seems like this collected, intentional effort yeah. at ex investigating, which yeah. is, am I overthinking that? Is it different from just this open awareness? Um, yes and no. That's a definite opaque non-response. Uh, there is a way of investigating that can be quite intentional. Uh, for example, you know, an emotional storm arises and you're kind of totally blown out by it. And, and you just ask yourself, what the hell's going on here? What, what's going on? Then you can take some steady attention and you can just kind of go into it and you can kind of parse it out and you can hear here's the narrative of what's going on and here's some memories associated with it here's the feeling in the heart and here's what's going on in the body and okay you know we can do that kind of active uh, isolating of different components of a conglomerate huh? that's one way of actively investigating but even as I say that it's not about thinking about the problem. It's from observing, isn't it? It's like, let me just let me just feel my way into this. <coughs> what do I feel in the body? Oh, I feel this. What's going on in the mind? Oh, here's the narrative. Oh, what does it feel like in the heart? Oh, it feels like that. And then, what is going on? So, I, I liken it to, here's, here's the emotional storm that arises, this psychophysical knot that appears periodically in our mind, right? Our heart. And so when we look at it, it's like, I'm sad. Really? Sad. Oh, sadness. What, what, what's that look like? Oh, and then we feel into this experience called sadness. But while we do that, or when we do that, it exposes some memory of a loss. Oh, so, oh, yeah, then we have the narrative of this loss of this person or this pan or this something. So then we have the memory, the narrative of that. But then we get to the experience of loss. And so we feel into loss, and when we feel into loss, then we feel how empty we feel inside. So then we have the anatomy, you know. And so as you keep just kind of observing, you're just observing. You're not think, you're not figuring it out. You're not explaining. It's just feeling, 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 noticing, noticing, noticing. Then you kind of get the exploded view. It's like, oh, it's it's all these impersonal kind of things that arise due to their own conditions that I don't control any of them. But when they're all glued together with identification, I'm suffering. But when you see them as the impersonal pixels of phenomena, then you stop suffering. So it doesn't go back together quite as solid as it was initially, even though there is the memory of the sadness and the loss, etc. You're not so identified with it. So in that sense, mindfulness is like a solvent of the sense of self. This is myself. I'm sad. And as you be mindfully aware of it, you kind of dissolve the identification with all the stuff that made up this experience. So, in that sense, you get the anatta, you get the anatta view, or the conditioned nature of every sense of self that gets glued together by the identification. There's another way of investigating, though, and I'll mention it, because it's a little different. In, uh, in, this, in this traditional practice, when when a particular 
scenario or memory or story or drama, you know, emotional storm, keeps coming up. You've looked at it. You've seen it. You know the story. You've, you've done all your exploration on it. You can figure out. You know, but it still keeps coming up. Our understanding is, well, there's something about that that hasn't been seen. Something about something in there is still hooking your sense of self, hooking to your sense of self. Your sense of self is still attached or hanging on to something there. But you know what you know about this. You know the narrative. You know the sensations in the body. You know the you know the feeling in the heart. You know you you know everything you know. But there still might be something. So how are you going to investigate and recognize what you don't yet know? Well, you can't focus on, or you can't attend to, or you can't observe what you do know, but you have to make space in your mind for what you don't know. So what I suggest people do is say, okay, here it is, again. I know the story. I know the story. I know the narrative of this whole scenario. Just put that over here. And what does it feel like in the body? Oh, you can do your three-dimensional three anatomical survey of the body and get everything kind of pegged and say, okay, I know what's going on in the body. And then you can say, well, what's going on in the heart? This, this thing here. And it's not physical sensations, and it's not the story. It's a feeling in the heart. What's that feel like? That's very subtle. So you get the best sense of that. And then you say, okay, here's the narrative. Here's the physical. Here's the heart feeling. Okay. Then you just say to yourself, what else is going on here that hasn't yet been recognized? So, you're not focusing on what you do know, you're just saying, you're making space in the mind to let what hasn't yet been recognized come into view. And if you start looking for something, then you won't see it. You'll only see what you already know. And so, how do you make space for what you don't yet know? So, it's like, it's like this. We're in the room. If I said, what do you know about the room? Oh, there's 15 people here, and there's a white noise sound, and, you know, the floor is... This band, this light-colored maples or something, and there's these cushions, and you know, eventually we would we would describe everything in the room, right? And I say, what else? Keep looking, and, and you look around, you try to find something else, but it might take a long time before we recognize the actual shape of the room. Oh, it's got that thing, you know, the shape of the room is like. Not the first thing you notice, but it's still there. We're right in it. We're seeing it. We're knowing it. We just haven't recognized it. So it's like that. There's stuff going on in our mind, and we're just we're distracted or kind of uh, our attention is called to the most obvious things, not the most subtle things. So in order to recognize the subtler things, we have to kind of make space. We're not denying or getting away or pushing away the obvious stuff. We're just saying, what else? Has, what, what's going, what hasn't been recognized? What else is going on? Two ways to investigate. Not from thinking, but from observing. How are we doing? A little bit more time. It might be good just to say a few words, Steve, about being in front of a group in the Dharma chair, Dharma cushion, and in a way being responsible to convey not just your own practice, but also... Some with some integrity, the teachings of the Buddha, and, and just any reflections about that for the group. Mm. 
Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is, <clears throat> I remember when I first started teaching, I had a lot of confidence just because I was coming out of five years of monastic practice. I just, I knew my practice really well, and people were interested. So, I would, I was willing to share my interests with others, but still I was self-conscious and nervous. So even though when I was going to give a talk, for example, I would have the talk prepared, and it would be, I mean, I put it together, and I, it, it's good material, and I know the material, and I have confidence in it. Still, when I looked out there, I'd go, you know, get nervous, self-conscious, until one time, I usually turn around and pay homage to the Buddha, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and uh, just kind of, I was, I was doing the thing with the Buddha, and I realized, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything original to me. Nothing, this is not about me. I'm only kind of using my best knowledge of and language for and experience of what the Buddha talked about, what the Buddha pointed to. So then I said, oh, whatever I say, whether people like it or not, that's, that's not about me. It's about the Dharma. And I know that the Dharma is counterintuitive, it's challenging, it goes against the stream of our conditioning and our beliefs, it's, you know, people can have all kinds of reactions. So, when I recognized that, then when I gave my talk, I didn't feel, I really felt that it wasn't about me. You know, I had to just do as best I could to represent the teachings of the Buddha as I heard them, as I practiced them, as I understood them, but it isn't about me performing. I mean, I, it is kind of about performing, but it wasn't a personal uh, 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 attribute of mine, what I was saying. It was like, this is the Dharma. And my, my faith in the Dharma, my experience of the Dharma, is a lot more intelligent than Steve. So, and that's it. And the other thing that I think is really, I mean, I, I keep, and I think I mentioned it in the retreat, is when somebody comes to listen to the Dharma, when, when you're here, just listening to, to me talk, you have faith. You have some level of faith in the Dharma. You maybe have some level of faith in uh, me, what you've heard of me, or you have some faith in your own capacity to practice. That's the most important thing in the world. My information is not so important as your faith. So whatever I say, however I say it, I want to be sure to not damage your faith your confidence in yourself, or uh, your practice, or the teachings of Buddha. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is, we can get pretty, uh, in this role, we can get challenged a lot. And if we get defensive, and argue, argumentative, or you know, putting down others, you might win the argument, but you might damage their faith. So it's really important to you know, be humble enough to recognize, I don't know for sure, you know, or when you don't know for sure, and to recognize the difference between uh, theory, practice, and understanding. Because you know, if you really stick to your own understanding, you'll be safe. But when you get into the dogma of the Dharma, Dharma Dogma, um, you can get argumentative. And it's always 
It's always best to say, I don't know. Or to give the spectrum. You know, the books say this, my experience is this, and I believe or don't believe this. So that you can kind of help people differentiate between what they know from experience, what they've heard, and what where the where the difference is. Not to claim anything as absolute. And then maybe the third thing is wisdom is a living wisdom and understanding is a living experience. You know, in our understanding and our wisdom and our uh, the way we understand things is good for the moment that we have this understanding. You know, and it's not like something that you experienced last year on your retreat is still wisdom for you. Uh, so, because you might practice this time, you know, a year later, and have a different understanding of that similar experience. So you have to kind of keep doing your practice to keep wisdom alive and not just rest on, oh yeah, I heard this, or I once experienced that, and so it must still be true. It's not. You know, because um, our understanding grows, and if we recognize that, then we can more trust uh, what we're experiencing now and our understanding of what we have, what the understanding that we have now, and share that. You know, allowing it to be contingent, knowing that, well, now, this is, this is the way it is now, I, this is the thing I see from teaching now for 25 years. It's like, wow, I was pretty, I was pretty arrogant. <laughs> you know, pretty stiff in my beliefs about my own experience. But then when you start team teaching, particularly when you start team teaching, you realize, wow, not everybody has the same experience. I'll give you one example. When I was teaching three-month courses, Joseph Sharon, Stephen, and Michelle, one year, Michelle McDonald, Steve Smith, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, uh, we used to have these interminably long teacher meetings every week that were just numbingly long and tedious. And, uh, and I don't know why we did it. You know. So then we decided... One year, we're not going to have. We're going to just take care of the business part of the teacher meeting each week in one hour. We got one hour, so you get through that, and then we're going to spend the next hour, hour and a half, as long as it takes, just to talk about dharma, our own dharma. Oh, that was really interesting. So we gave each person the opportunity to share their practice of insight and concentration, jhana practice, without interruption. And so I got to hear Joseph's whole Dharma, Dharma history, Sharon's whole Dharma history, Stephen and Michelle's Dharma history. And while we're all practicing in the same tradition, and we've all had similar types of experience, we don't use the same language at all. <laughs> and it's like, I could, I could, you know, without having recognized that, I could say, you're wrong. Because you're not, you're not talking about an experience that I had, even though the understanding might be the same. So it's like, oh, that was really instructive to, to understand that you could practice together, you could have similar experiences, you could arrive at similar understandings and use completely different language to talk about it. That's interesting. You know, now, now when I try to point to that understanding to people like yourselves or other students, I just say, imagine you take Salvador Dali, if he was still living, 
and you take your local weather person, and you take them up to the nearest mountain to watch the sunset. You don't go. They go. They go out and they watch the sunset. And then they come back to this room and they tell you what they saw. And Salvador Dali says, I saw that. And the local weather person says, well, I saw this. You would never recognize they were talking about the same thing. So the same thing goes on in our, in the interior of our heart. I'm looking at my heart and I'm seeing, you know, this suffering, and I'm seeing this end of suffering, and I'm seeing this, you know, whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it concentration or wisdom or faith or anything, I'm seeing this, and you're practicing, and you're seeing your suffering, and you're seeing your confidence and your faith, and your end of suffering, and we talk about it. There's some, there's some recognition that we're talking about the same thing, we have a resonance, even though we use different language. It's really important to, to know that, not to, not to be so caught in the words and the language, but really try to look at, try to feel into where are they coming from? What's that, what's the experience they're talking about? What are they feeling? How's that? Yeah, yeah that was helpful, Steve. Thanks. And I want to be sensitive with your time. Um, maybe just, if there is a last question, somebody didn't get a chance, which is something that feels important to bring up and ask Steve before we end. Let me ask you something. So, We've been here for a couple of hours. How's it been? What happened? What were you aware of? What touched you? Is it okay? Not am I okay. Was it okay for you to be here? Ah, I was bored. Was it okay to be aware of yourself? So, how was it? I'm not saying... Oh, you did great, Steve. <laughs> what well, of everything that we talked about was useful or novel or surprising to hear or something? How about you? How was it for you? What was most interesting? <laughs> To me, everything sounded quite nice. There were just little things in life that I obviously don't do. Yeah. And I never really thought of that until some of the things that were so much fun. So just being aware of some of the things on a day to day As a beginner, that might be very helpful. That's, no, that's, a, that's a good one. No, that, that's graduate level understanding. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we get we get kind of influenced by a lot of teachings and practice becomes you know, something like this. But actually, in the end, it comes down to when you walk down the street, know that you walk down the street. When you brush your teeth, know that you brush your teeth. It's really simple. But it's not easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. Mm -hmm. uh, hope it's helpful. So many of you know that just in case you don't know, Steve, besides you know coming and leading the TCBC treat, retreat since 1993, has been you know the teacher of so many of the teachers here. One of my important teachers, Shelley, of course. How many three month courses did you do? Uh, four. And Steve was uh, one of the main teachers at all of those four three month retreats. Besides many many TCBC retreats and. Other times I've been with Steve as a teacher, as one of my teachers. Um, 
So just has had a really, he and Kamala, and yeah, just part of this uh, transmission of the Buddhist teachings. I mean, there have been other influences, but in our particular community, Steve has been really an essential sort of conduit for these teachings of the Buddha. So I personally am very deeply grateful, Steve, for just having run into you and being able to learn from you and grateful that you've been able to help support this Dharma leadership training. And uh, we're going to offer some dana from the community to, to Steve, but uh, anybody else who's here who would like to, I have an envelope here, you can just put it directly here. If you're writing a check, you can just write it off to Steve, and we'll just include it with the card that I think made the rounds. If you didn't get a chance and you want to write a little note to Steve, it's when has it, so you can do that and we'll get it to Steve before he leaves. Um, and you probably can guess, you know, after teaching a nine-day retreat, people generally are pretty tired, so, and I know Steve has to fly tomorrow, right? So we're going to get him to the hotel pretty quick, so if you want to... Seven o'clock flight. Yeah, so if you want to just say hi and goodbye... Um, I'm here, yeah, I'm here. Any other business we should take care of? We gather again on the 15th, is it? Saturday afternoon, the 15th, for our <coughs> mini Dharma talks in the Four Noble Truths. Remember, you can work together to develop your talks. You don't have to do it in isolation. You know how to get in touch with each other. And uh, say goodbye to Shelley because she's taking a short vacation with her lovely wife. And then on a four-week retreat? Yeah, so out at Prairie Farm. So you can just send her love and support out there for her retreat time. But she'll be back for the August uh, work that we'll do together. Are there announcements? So we should... And then Gabe will send out the recorder. We did record it. Louis obviously is in here. Cecilia, um, Roseanne, and Louis just came off for the retreat. Then Steve and Femi's out in Massachusetts. So a couple of folks are going to have to listen to it. Um, the recording. Thanks again, Steve. Yeah. Let me just say uh, I enjoyed the opportunity to be here. Uh, I hope it's helpful. Uh, whatever Diana you offer me, uh, I will use it to continue to share the Dharma. Some of it will support me, but a lot of it will go to support other Dharma activities and training teachers and supporting scholarship funds and things like that. It's not going into a bank account for long. So the effect of your generosity just kind of keeps going. It comes to me, and I pass it on to others, and they pass it on to others. So, um, benefit of your gift is uh, multiplied many times over. And just because I have this long connection with Mark and Gwyn and this uh, a lot of you, uh, and uh, come here annually in Maryland too, uh, if if there's an opportunity in the future that. I can offer some dharma for this training group, for this teacher group, and please don't hesitate to talk. Well, you know, you have an open invitation to find another time. No, but you have to find it. <laughs> you have to find that, right? <laughs> <laughs> May I? I'd be willing to come tomorrow. What a sacrifice. Devoted student of the Dalai. Maybe that's it. Maybe we should... Have a yeah, morning. there you go. A week long seminar in Maui <laughs> yeah, for Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about in February. Uh,
I asked Steve once, what is he doing for retirement? Like, do you have money saved up? He says, well, I'm just going to keep teaching until I die. die. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I forget exactly. But something well, like that. How does, that was his how does a Dhamma teacher retire? You know, anybody asks you a question, just start teaching. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you gotta, you got to shut up. You can't talk. <laughs> and then people will say, oh, look, he's so, such a good yogi. He's just sitting there all the time. And you still be not retired. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I, I, I just feel like I have to tell you this uh, uh, separating language from experience or like what is this awareness refer what is that experience yeah. it was just so helpful just oh, yeah. really helpful yeah like, oh awareness okay yeah sure but no one knows what it means okay. right exactly for this person or that person so that yeah. was I'm gonna, beyond I'm gonna, useful okay I'm gonna send uh, I'll send you something mm -hmm. it's a uh, you know the Aware, I call awareness different than mindfulness, but I call awareness the activity of the five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, samadhi, and wisdom. So awareness is the activity of five factors, and I have a whole talk on awareness as these five, but I have a, a, a table with some information about these five factors, and it'll explain that. Everything about the function, the manifestation, the characteristics, and the proximate cause of all of these five factors. And if you spend some time poring over it and looking at it, you'll, you'll begin to understand how these different factors of mind work in the process called awareness. So, yeah, that would be great. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.